What's happening, guys? Uh, it's your friend Christopher Sweat here. I, I'm actually sitting with a, a professor of mine last semester, uh, Dr. Steinmo, uh, who's in the political science department at CU Boulder. And I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation because um, you guys have heard a lot of my kind of fascination with um, politics. And I, I took uh, Dr. Steinmo's um, comparative politics class. So it's blending really well with some of the other things that I'm looking at around like international uh, political economy and, uh, and the ways that I think about corporate activism and so forth. Uh, and so uh, Dr. Steinmo's research is, uh, kind of captivated me, um, especially just uh, around um, like institutional analysis and different behavioral methods. Uh, evolutionary theory, which um, I, I hope we uh, get to discuss that a little bit. And then um, one that I would regard uh, maybe con considered a little bit more contentious these days around um, American exceptionalism. Um, but, but, but I, I, I do, Dr. Steinmo, I, I do love um, your delivery and uh, your assessments of um, just the world and so forth. So, so it, was, it, was, it was actually, just to let you know, it was very fascinating to um, be a part of your uh, lectures last semester. Um, there were a lot of uh, points where, like, maybe it was hard for me to contend with certain ideas that you were presenting, but they were still, um, in my opinion, as a you know, student, they were still very um, rigorous and well-informed. So, so I feel like many of the points that you make are worth the conversation. I, I think, uh, Dr. Simo, if you're open to it, maybe where, where we could start this conversation, because I, I, I understand that you, you have lectured um, in many parts of the world, um, you, you know, you've been cited over 20,000 times. You, you, you've written books, publications. You, you've got some new works on the way. But maybe you could uh, give the audience a little bit of an understanding, like, like how the hell did you end up, uh, you know, doing your your PhD in political science at UC Berkeley? Like, what what was your path into academia? <laughs> well, um, I. I, I went to college and went to UC, I finished college at UC Santa Cruz, which had no grades. That's an important <laughs> part of this story. Um, and then um, worked as a carpenter and uh, traveled to Europe. I'm Norwegian American and ended up working in oil fields, uh, offshore oil, and realized that um, I made a shitload of money, uh, but okay. uh, was not a uh, something I wanted to do or even could do for the rest of my life. Uh, coincidentally, the platform that I, uh, one of the pl platform, you have a hotel platform, your helicopter back and forth after 12 hour shifts. Um, the platform I was on about two months after I was there capsized and all 280 or so people on it died. So I was very lucky um, to have gotten off the platform. But while there, I, I studied politics in, uh, at Santa Cruz. And I thought I'd like to, I want to be a college professor because they have summer vacations and all kinds of cool stuff like that. And so I applied from, from an oil plat from the platform, literally. Um, and I got admitted to Berkeley because I had no GRE scores and no grades. 
I got admitted on a, a, as a diversity candidate, apparently the chair of the admissions committee, they were under pressure to, you know, because normally they basically have a bunch of white men from Yale and Princeton and Harvard and so on. And they were trying to get diversity. And this, this uh, head of the committee said, somebody works in oil fields, that's diverse. <laughs> 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 and so... I uh, applied, but I was working in, as I was working in the field, um, there was a, another, there was a British platform you could see on the horizon. I was in Norwegian water. And because I was a Norwegian American, a lot of my, uh, uh, a lot of the oil engineers that were out there, they would always come to me and they'd try and talk and help. Like they were pissed off at working in Norway because the Norwegians made it so difficult and they all wanted to be working on the British platform. And so when I applied, I said, I'd like to write a master's thesis, which is you know, some, you, when you apply, you say, this is what I want to do, um, on, on the, uh, the political economy of North Sea oil. Um, it was my hunch, and it turned out I was right with this hunch, that the reason they like oil companies like working in Britain is that the British allowed them to completely screw them over. Uh, the, basically, the British said, oh, there's oil out there? What do you need? <laughs> Okay. So the oil company said, well, we need to have, you know, 99 year contracts where you promise never will tax us, blah, 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 blah. And the Norwegians attitude was, yeah, there's also fish out there. I don't mm. think we're really not sure we want you to drill the oil. And then the oil companies went, oh, please, please, please. What can we give you? Mm. Um, and uh, one of the things, for example, they did was they basically for every engineer they brought out, they had to train a Norwegian engineer and they set up a Norwegian oil company that was a 51% owner of all the fields. And Norway ended up becoming the third largest oil technology exporter in the world. Um, and England got nothing. They didn't get any tax revenue. They became a, a you know, there were a few oil jobs and that was about it. Um, but so I applied to graduate school. I wrote this thesis and then I was applied. Then they offered me to stay in and do a PhD thesis. That's how I started my career in political science. Jeez, that's fascinating. And uh, so, like, what the oil fields? Like, um, were were you coming from a blue collar background? Had you ever imagined academia would be kind of a route for you? Like, that must have been an interesting. I mean, no, my parents were. uh, My, you know, they they came. They were like all Norwegians uh, of the nineteen forties and fifties. They were born in the twenties. They were poor, um, but my mother actually got a uh, got a PhD after she came to America. My father was an engineer, um, so I was a middle class kid. lived in a middle class suburb in California, um, but I had done a lot of field work, farm work. Uh, you know, the, my parents were very traditional. You know, if you want to have spending money, earn it. Um, so, um, but. Uh, I went into the oil fields in part because I knew it was, it just paid so damn well. It was incredible. I could see that. Um, so w- what is it about political science that kept you hooked? Like, uh, like what do you think has kind of uh, brought your career through to this, this point um, in terms of politics? Um, I think it's actually a little bit of the fact that I'm, I'm, I'm bicultural. Uh, and have lived in Norway and lived in the U.S. and of course, and now I've lived in a number of countries. But I was, I have always been puzzled by 
what I, I think Americans are the most egalitarian people in the world, more egalitarian than Norwegians or Swedes. And I've lived in both Norway and Sweden or Brits or Germans or whatever. And by egalitarian, I mean that they, most Americans genuinely believe that we should all be treated equally. I mean, there are of course asshole racists, but that's, I don't believe that's a huge part of our culture. Um, uh, it, most people believe that everyone should have an equal opportunity. That's a big deal in America. And that, and a good society for most Americans is a society in which we, we have that. And, and we're the richest country in the world. Um, and so it's a puzzle to me. Why is it that we end up, we have the, our, our values in my view are very egalitarian, yet our outcomes are very inegalitarian. We have one of the most unequal societies in the world today. People came to America even as late as the 1950s, like my parents, um, because it was the place where everyone could have an opportunity. It was the most equal society in the world. That's why people came from Germany and Russia and wherever. Um, uh, now only really poor people want to come here because it's not an equal society. Uh, the, the, in Norway and Sweden, you used to be an example like, oh, people say, oh, no, it's not, it's not the most egalitarian rub. Well, um, up to recently, uh, in most countries, you were listed in the phone book by your profession. Mm. You know? Why is that? Well, it's so people could rank you. Right? In sure. most countries, your last name indicates what rank and royalty or lack of royalty you have. Uh, sure. Americans don't. And so so this puzzle has always motivated me, and it's been really the motivator for most of my research. Of the, I've set and written several books and mm-hmm. tried to go at this from different ways to understand why is it we have this such a... Why does everybody believe we should have such equal uh, equal opportunity, and yet we have the society now with the one of the lowest levels of equal opportunity that, um, in in the modern advanced world? When I um, when I speak to uh, some of my friends in different parts of the world that have uh, a more nuanced politic, I guess you could say, they're very anti. Um, what they would deem as rhetoric around American exceptionalism, um, like like very anti, and, and then even domestically, uh, I, I'll have uh, discussions with people that um, are maybe from certain communities that are maybe like a, like more multi generational American backgrounds, and and they still have a hard time ca- kind of understanding some of the explosive growth that you know took place past uh post-world war ii um because they feel like those benefits didn't trickle down to them or their families and i'm sure there's a lot of nuances there but but like what are your your thoughts around uh, american exceptionalism do you think that uh you know the u.s hegemony the kind of uh perception of uh, greatness that has uh, been so pervasive in America over many years. Do, do, do you think there are like legitimate reasons that that may be declining or is, is that something that needs to be brought back into the discourse at large? Well, um, I think you raised a set of different questions and issues. Um, so it's hard for me to give you a one sentence answer to them. I mean, the American exceptionalism is one thing. The decline of American authority and power and, 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 and respect around the world 
is not the same thing. Um, and, and indeed, I think even the phrase American exceptionalism, it is held very, it can have very many, can have very different meanings. So why don't you tell me what you think you mean when you use this phrase American exceptionalism? I think how it, it's like, um, this is a random example, but I, I love this musician named Lana Del Rey. And a lot of people would peg her sound as this kind of uh, uh, what what we would call like Pax Americana. Okay, it's like this uh, this lustful beauty of uh, America, the culture. And so when I think about ideas of American exceptionalism, I think of like a, a maybe a a projection of you know. Uh, how great America is uh, domestically and abroad, and then uh, uh, you know I I have these conversations like like even just making the argument about uh, how much uh, power America projects globally, or even just talking about how liquid the financial markets are in America. For whatever reason, these seem to um, Evoke a certain kind of vitriol, uh, you know, in in uh, in, in various uh, communities that may um, identify as, um, you know, what we could say is uh, marginalized, or some of the terms that are entering the discourse, uh, you know, like oppressed. And so sometimes, like even what clouded my uh, lens of um, reading some of your research initially and and taking your class was. Like it, it, it was hard for me to uh, root myself in this acceptance that I am still in the greatest, most powerful country in the world, only to the extent in which I felt that idea was expressed to me unilaterally growing up and, and, and kind of uh, reinforced over time. And uh, I, I think later, Later in, in, in my short years so far, but later in my years, I kind of started to develop a, somewhat of a, a disdain of like, uh, like I, I feel like, uh, like uh, American exceptionalism leaves little room for uh, critique in, uh, uh, you know, just in, in American culture. But, but, but that may be some of my uh, biases. So, well, um, so there's no question that America is exceptional, but then again, so is Sweden, so is France, so is South Korea, right? So every country is exceptional. And most countries tend to think, the people in those countries tend to think that we have the greatest country, right? Um, probably not in North Korea, but who knows? Um, but uh, I can tell you Norwegians, they think they have the greatest country in the world. And in my view, they've got a lot of evidence for this. Uh, and so it's, there's nothing exceptional about, well, first of all, all countries are exceptional. All, all countries are different. There is this vitriolic, I think that's the word you use, and I believe that's a, I get that. That's, that tends to be this sort of uh, drum beating or chess beating on, um, on the part of many Americans, especially in the right wing or center and right. Um, they think we're the greatest country. We're the only, the classic is that we're the only country where you can make it from poverty to riches, right? Oh, the only, that's bullshit. 
<laughs> it's just bullshit. We are not sure. the only country where people start and a person can start up poor and become very, very rich. I mean, I think we're not using Skype at the moment, not invented in America, but invented by Swedes. Have you ever been to an IKEA? Right? That was started by an unemployed carpenter in Sweden who started building little things in his garage because he didn't have enough space. And he said, oh, I can't build a table or whatever it is here, but I'll build, I'll drill all the holes for you and put it together and you can assemble it in your house. That becomes, he's a multi-billionaire out of this basic. And he's from Sweden, Tetra Pak, other, you know, lots of examples in just Sweden, which is a so-called social democratic or social socialist country. Sure. Um, and, and, and indeed, the, it, today in the United States, and this is relatively new in the last 30 years or so, 40 maybe, um, there is less class mobility in the United States than most European democracies or Western Australia, etc. Okay. Um, in other words, it's harder or less likely for, for somebody to go from being poor to middle class or middle class to rich in America than in Sweden, for example, or Norway or Germany. Um, so we have this, it used to be the case for the vast majority of American history, it was definitely the case that there were less rigid class structures. Um, okay. And that's what I was saying, that we have this culture, this belief system that you ought to be able to take, start from scratch. Um, and that was part of what one of the reasons, a major reason that, it, that so many people came to America from other countries Usually it was the middle and lower classes that came to the America because they could, in effect, start all over. Um, let's, but let's not forget they were able to start all over because they stole lands at, from people who were already living here. Right? Mm -hmm. um, the Native Americans never really bought into the, uh, the American dream of anybody can make it because they had cavalrymen shooting them uh, if they tried to make it, let's say. Sure. But but the, so so I, I, the second part of what you're suggesting, I think, is that that it's it feels different now for a young person like yourself. It doesn't this vitriolic America is the best country where everybody can make it doesn't feel true any longer. And in my view, it isn't true any longer. Um, okay. It's certainly the case that you people can make it if you uh, from from relative you know immigrants. Uh, Elon Musk is, I think, a, a South African Im immigrant. Sure. Um, the people started Google were Russians, uh, immigrants and things like that, or children of those immigrants. That's very, I'm, a, I'm an immigrant myself. I'm now, a, you know, I'm hardly a multimillionaire, but I'm an upper middle class doing well. But then again, had my parents stayed in Norway, I would also be upper middle class and doing really well. Or if they'd moved to Germany or Britain or whatever, it's, we're not unique in that sense at all anymore. Mm -hmm. Whereas a hundred years ago, we were. Mm -hmm. So I think, so one of the features of the human cognitive mind is that our we we don't really evaluate the world accurately okay. we evaluate the world according or and our life experience according to our expectations hmm. so if you live in a, if you believe that my future will be better or that the future for my children will be better than it was for me. That was part of the American dream. Every generation was supposed to be richer than the, the, their parents, right? Well, we now know that's simply not true, right? It's not the case that you're likely, you as an individual may be doing better than your parents, but your class, that is your, 
your age class will not do better than your parents unless you're very lucky your parents did really well and then they bought a house for you and pay for you to go to an expensive education and in other words they might finance your ability and then you inherit a bunch of money from them but your sure. starting from scratch story in america is not dead but it's it's certainly not uh, uh what it used to be and that it ca causes a cognitive dissonance because we expect in America that ought to be every generation gets richer. And now we know that that's, that we're frustrated by that. I believe that, for example, the, the core of support for the Donald Trump's uh, voters is precisely the failure, the, the, the reality that they're living in um, confronts the, their expectations about what used to be like. They are not, I mean, they may, may or may not like Trump as a, as a personality. I don't think very many people actually like Trump as a personality. But sure. what he represents to them is somebody who's coming from the outside and says, something's rotten in our society because we, the let's working middle class American, especially rural, um, used to be able to buy a snowmobile every three years and a new truck every other year, right? Sure. And now my kid works at Walmart for $12 and 50 cents an hour. And he's never going to buy a new truck. He'll only truck he can afford or she can afford is one that I will give her. That is why they're pissed off. It has to do with our expectations. So the American dream, this image of what we ought to be like is failing. And then of course, you, the last thing you mentioned was about foreign policy America did believe really genuinely, America and the American leadership genuinely believed that we ought, we had a responsibility to share the wealth of our society. We believe, they believe, we believe that a democracy and capitalism were the best possible systems. And, and it would be greedy of us to simply hoard it for ourselves. So we made international institutions, the world, uh, you know, World Bank, the IMF, the United Nations. Uh, we helped rebuild Europe all kinds of things like that actually spent quite a lot of American coin to try and help the world. Um, and I think was uh, probably hubris on our part to think that you could reshape the world, but we certainly overextended ourselves as a person of the Vietnam generation. I can tell you, we way overextended ourselves. Mm. And I don't think we went to Vietnam or Iraq because we wanted oil or, or, you know, to make Dow chemical more rich. It was, we really believed that these were things that we ought to do and that our failure is part of our dashed expect expectations. Interesting. So do you think that like um, th these institutions uh, or, you know, th this belief system that we're talking about, because, you know, we're deep in ideas of the, you know, the American dream and so forth. Do you think that these institutions need to evolve or, or, or like, what do you think is a, a, a catalyst to maybe improve some of these conditions that we're talking about that aren't living up to people's expectations in certain? Well, first, I would make a very, I would, I would draw a distinction between what I would call ideas or values and ideas and norms and preferences on the one institutions on the other. Um, institutions, I think of them as rather formal rules. Um, the constitution, the, the system by which we vote, um, 
market-based institutions that are right. You know, nobody. Uh, so those are is and values are related for sure, but they're not the same thing. So um, I, I think the, the the basic ideas underlying the American system, American democracy, American liberal capitalism are really good ideas. And I think the institutions, the rules by which we govern our society are screwed up. I see that. I think um, you said something really fascinating on uh, this podcast that I was listening to. I, I believe you were recording with a Dartmouth student. And, and I, I wanted to dig into this because I feel like this uh, is kind of maybe what I would call a hot take. Um, but the, uh, the quote of what you said was the basic assumption economists make about human behavior are wrong. Yes. And, and so, 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 you know, I, I've spent a, a little bit of time talking to you outside of lecture and, and I have heard, uh, uh, maybe certain critiques of economics or economists in general. Could, could you give us maybe a little bit, um, uh, more detailed perspective on what that critique's rooted in and maybe expand on it a little bit? Um, actually, yes, I can. And I would also say it, I believe that this is what economists, the sort of the mainstream of economics is changing, by the way, but has been um, for the last several decades, is related to why America is failing today. Because mm. this idea embedded in what we call neoliberal or neoclassical economics, the most famous representative of that would be Milton Friedman, uh, but many others, and became the dominant idea in economics in the U.S. and somewhat less in, in other European, uh, some other European countries. But that fundamental idea, it, it diverged from classical, what we call classical economics, of economics of Schumpeter, the economics of Thorsten Veblen, the economics of of uh, 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 John Maynard Keynes. And what it, it came on the heels of the 1970s inflationary period in which the monetarists, that is uh, people like Milton Friedman, came along and said, you know, what's wrong is the government is trying to do all these things and it can't do them. And the really the right way to run a government, I mean, run a, an economy and by implications and a, a, and a, a country government is for let individuals make all their own choices. The market will decide everything. And underlying that philosophy, that it is a philosophy, really underlying that philosophy is that all human beings are fundamentally what they call homo economicus. That is individually self-interested, self-motivated uh, actors. And all they really care about is they're, they're maximizing their own self-interest. And the only way to really figure out what that means is money. Um, and so while if a politician, and this is the thing that Milton Friedman would say, uh, and many since then, if a politician says uh, he is trying to do or she is trying to do something for you, he's lying because he's only trying to do something for himself or herself because that's the only thing that motivates anybody, right? Okay. Only thing we care about is maximizing our own individual self-interest or what they sure. call utilities. Now, once you ask them what utilities say, then they get a little squishy and they, well, 
uh, that's up to you. But what they can't measure what's up to you. So let's just call it economic well-being. Okay. Now, that then uh, was picked up by Ronald Reagan, quite literally. Uh, and then many politicians and leaders in America since then, including Bill Clinton, who basically then changed our policies. So instead of having government that to try and do things where we act collectively and do things to improve society, we will now say, oh, the best way to, uh, the, uh, the best way to improve the economy, for example, is to let everybody act on their own. And since rich people are obviously better economic actors than poor people, give the money to the rich people, and then everything will be groovy. And we see what's happened. Right. The consequence of that is rich people got a lot richer, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot richer. Mm -hmm. And poor people have gotten poorer and poorer. And the distance between the middle, lower, middle, and upper classes has grown. And it's made it a, a, so it's this is a great philosophy if you've done very well. And if you or and certainly a really better philosophy if you inherit really well. Mm -hmm. um, it's a terrible philosophy, in my view, if you don't. But again, the fundamental assumption of this part of economics um, is that everybody is a self-interested actor and it mm -hmm. is wrong. Not wrong because we are not self-interested because of course we are, but it's wrong because it's, it assumes it's the only motivation. Okay. And if you study evolutionary theory, which you mentioned early, uh, it becomes very obvious and not just, you know, evolutionary psychology, psychology, you name the field, anybody who's actually at, uh, looked, do people act as they would, as you, uh, as you predict, or they predict in um, classical economics? And the answer is no, they don't. People care about other people. Um, not the least of which is obvious when you raise children, you're not raising children so you can sell them, right? <laughs> you sure. know, Hopefully you, not. <laughs> you know, or you can sell their livers or something like that. Uh, right. Um, you, you're, we we care a great deal about others. We care about how others perceive us, not just because it maximizes our reputation, therefore we can make more money, which is how an economist would interpret it, but because we actually care. Um, it is when 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 Homo sapiens climbed out of the caves and started planting uh, uh, crops, uh, they cooperated, and the ones. Uh, uh, Darwin has a wonderful little quote in The Descent of Man, which basically I can't quote it exactly right off the top, but basically it says, if you imagine two uh, tribes or villages, one which everyone acts in their own self-interest and the other one which they've learned how to cooperate with another, in a, in a um, which one of those are going to outcompete the other community? And it's clearly the ones who've learned to cooperate. Mm -hmm. um, and so we've got... Uh, economics has been steered and there and the uh, uh, political leaders have been steered by the way to make things better is to give uh, is to let everybody act on their own self-interest and what that really in the end has meant is uh allow give an incentive for poor people to work harder i.e mm -hmm. make them really poor um and reward those who are really good i.e. make them, allow them to be much, much richer. So top mm -hmm. tax rates have been declining, declined. Um, family subsidies have declined. Housing subsidies have declined. Even support for, for uh, mental institutions has declined. Presumably the mentally insane will actually get better 
if they live on the street and have to beg for their money. Mm, it's brutal. And I think, um, so what we're talking, well, and what we're talking about right now, and we'll expand on this is kind of like, uh, in my opinion, the, the brutality of self-interest, but it, it seems like in, um, like in a liberal democracy, self-interest doesn't just invade economics, but it invades the way that people perceive themselves as individuals. But, but also it seems like self-interest invades our, our, uh, you know, uh, foreign policy in a, a lot of ways, like, you know, the way that Henry Kissinger really brought the realist perspective to the forefront in realpolitik. Mm -hmm. um, so do you, are you kind of getting into an area where like when, when you're thinking about Milton Friedman or, you know, Western uh, uh, economics over the years, are you, are you getting to the point where you're either saying that self-interest has limits or that self-interest is not an effective way to allocate resources? What I'm saying is, well, of course, there are limits on self-interest, right? That, I mean, that, I think that's self-evident. Even, even a hardcore economist would say, well, no, we really shouldn't be able to sell your children's livers. Um, but uh, the, what I'm saying is that by building a set of political and economic institutions solely around the idea that everybody should be out for themselves, you effectively teach, and this is what institutionalism would suggest. If you build institutions, rules that encourage people to behave a certain way, they will actually behave that way and come to believe that that's the way you ought to behave. If you live in a society where, where you are encouraged and reinforced to cooperate with one another, you are likely to believe that that is the right way to behave and you're likely to cooperate. So the last book I just published just came out with Oxford this month um, called Willing to Pay, with, where we tested this proposition essentially in five different countries, it had 3,700 subjects in five different countries, many, many, many laboratories. I, I can't even remember how many um, um, experiments we actually did, but, but tried to test. Do, do people, um, will people cooperate more or less in different societies? And the answer is that people are still inclined to cooperate in most societies, but at the margins, more people will cheat in some societies than in other societies. And that is when you dig deeper into what their motivation is, well, everybody cheats. So if you live in a world in which you think everybody cheats, then you're more likely to cheat. Not that you think it's a good idea, but you're a fool if you don't. And I worry that what we've done in America and what we are doing in America is building a society in which we see people who get away. The president of the United States cheats on his taxes or the last president of the United States. Everybody knows that Trump cheated on his taxes. Even his supporters sure. know he cheated on his taxes, right? So, mm -hmm. well, if he cheats on his taxes, why shouldn't I? And if I cheat on my taxes, then my kids will too. And if my, and if my neighbor knows that I cheat on my taxes, then why shouldn't he or she cheat on their taxes? And as a consequence, we see the, each other as, as untrustworthy. And I think one of the things that's dividing America, so I see is the belief that somebody else is getting something from me. Mm. I feel cheated. So the Black Lives Movement in America is motivated in part, in no small part, by the belief that white people have been getting a bunch of stuff and I, it's my turn. 
and the rural voter for Trump is say, is motivated in no small part by I think that those liberals and the coasts are uh, are are getting stuff that I'm not getting, um, and so we end up with a society where everybody we are ending into a society in which everyone thinks everyone else is getting something that they don't deserve or it's unfair and. I believe that this goes back to your first question about the sort of maybe end of American exceptionalism in the phrase that you use. I believe we're moving towards a society in which people don't trust each other and therefore don't care and care less about each other. And it's a very short step from that to actually hating each other. Mm. And since we're the most armed society in the world, that's dangerous. I see that. And um, do you, I may be restating this incorrectly, but do, do you believe that self-interest is at the crux of this kind of behavior, like some of what you referred to as cheating or? No, I mean, again, well, I, I probably didn't state my point clearly enough. Mm -hmm. I believe we are self, self-interested. That That is, there's no doubt that, you know, if I have an opportunity to, get more of something or less, I'll probably want more. Um, but I also believe, but what's wrong with that theory is that, that it assumes that that's all we care about. And what I point is that that's not all we care about. Um, human beings, most human beings, unless they're autistic, uh, have actually a great deal of empathy for others. Um, and so there's been experiments after experiments, after some of which I've done, but many, many, many economists have done this. And the economists are the ones who are breaking down this old silly model of homo economicus by showing that people actually, when given a chance to cooperate or to trade, um, or, or, or um, most people will do it. Not everyone will do it, but most people. A, a very specific example, one of the experiments we ran, we gave a uh, uh, people, we gave people an, 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 what you call an endowment. And then there was a certain, here's a, a little pot of money, not a great deal of money, let's say 10 bucks. And you say, okay, now you're going to be matched with somebody else in the room. And that person doesn't know who you are and you do not know who they are. And you don't know, and you will never know each other. Now, you have a choice and we give them a scale. You can keep all $10 yourself or you can split it 50-50 between you and this random other person. And, or you can give all of it to the other person and then, you know, scale chain. And then we have different versions of that scale. You keep a hundred and they get 60, whatever. Um, and what we found is that the vast majority of people will share, that is give away some money that is in their hands because they think they ought to. And, but of course there are some people who keep it all to themselves, but guess who keeps the, the, the people that keep them or gifts the educational background of those who keep it for themselves. Jeez. Uh, Is it lesser education? Nope. Economists. Interesting. Why? Because economists believe everybody behaves that way because that's what their teaching <laughs> tells them. Um, on the other hand, the uh, students of uh, humanists are more likely to share or the share a larger larger share. That's fascinating. Um, so I want to zoom out just a little bit um, uh, because uh, 
in your class last semester, I got to explore an idea more broadly that I don't think I had uh, had, had pondered in so much depth uh, about the, uh, again, this is from a really US-centric perspective, but about what I would say, uh, the, the plausibility that uh, liberal democratic capitalism it, it has been a great system for a long time, but, but there may be other systems that are emerging right now that, uh, you know, if we're just speaking from the perspective of wealth, have the potential of uh, creating more wealth. And uh, I know there's been a ton of public discourse um, around uh, the U.S. and China, whether it's in the vein of like U.S.-China relations or especially comparative politics. So I, I, I'm wondering, uh, Dr. Steinmo, if you could uh, maybe introduce some of your views. I mean, we, we've, we've kind of spent uh, the first part of our discussion on, on America, uh, the West, just some views there. But, but how does China come into the picture and what, what does that change, um, you know, when you look at the, the range of your research over the years? Um, well, first, to be clear, I'm not a China expert, though I have been there. My son lived there for five years and sure. six years. And so I, I know a bit, and I have studied it, of course, but I'm no expert. Um, I Let me start by saying, going back to a point I think you raised or I, uh, or I echoed, um, I, I'm a, I'm a, I am a strong believer and supporter in the basic values of democracy, liberal capitalism, um, and equality. Um, and I think what's gone wrong in America is that we become more, less and less equal and more and more dominated by a, um, uh, a an elite dominates us politically. So I think that's where we have gone wrong. Um, now, it's very clear if you look at growth rates in China and, and they're the second, if not the largest economy, soon to be the largest economy in the world. And their model is a totally different one. It is an authoritarian dictatorship. It's not a communist system by any stretch of the imagination. There's nothing communist about China. Um, maybe North Korea is communist, but I don't know enough about North Korea. Um, but what their model is, is, instead of having the basic foundation of a democratic, liberal democratic system, is that, this, that the governed should be able to tell the governors what they want and that the governors should do what the citizens want. Now, of course, it's more complicated and you mean a majority gets to decide what about minority rights and so on. But, you know, there are many, many different ways of it, it executing this fundamental idea that the governors rule on the, um, at the will of the governed, right? It's a messy system under the best of circumstances. Right, it makes all kinds of errors. America has 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 done, and so have every other liberal capitalist democratic democratic society. The Chinese model, that is, authoritarian dictatorships with a state-run economy or a state-guided economy, and they have markets, not just at the local level, but they have you know some of the richest billionaires in the world are now Chinese billionaires, um, and they have you know a great deal of innovation and so on. But the challenge, and this is the challenge they put to us, is that their system is more efficient. 
that they won't make it so it's messy. And after all, citizens don't know shit anyway. And and they make dumb choices. And and look at look look at what they did with Donald Trump, right? That's a dumb choice, isn't it? Or maybe you think Biden is a dumb choice. Well, you don't have that problem in in uh, China because the the he you don't have a choice. And and the leaders of China are clearly highly intelligent people um, and have done a very, very good job in the last 20 years, at least, of governing their society in a way which has produced incredible wealth and growth for the vast majority of people. So that, you know, it was a, a, a very much a peasant based society and now it is becoming an industrial behemoth. Their argument is that this system that is this autocratic authoritarian, centralized political system is more efficient for guiding the society and the economy than is a democratic liberal system. And I don't know, they might be right. But I hope not, let's put that at minimum. But I also think that there's something flawed in the argument um, that they hold, which is that and indeed, the the founding fathers, James Madison, uh, wrote that you know if you if we were all angels, I'm now paraphrased, but basically if we were all angels, we wouldn't need governor, we would need governments. And if the governors were all angels, you wouldn't need to change them. Now that's my add to that. But let's assume she is a, an angel, a brilliant angel. He's also an old man, and eventually he will pass away. And who replaces him? Will it be another angel? maybe, uh, and then another angel, and then another angel, and then another angel, I doubt it. Uh, I seriously doubt it, especially given in autocratic system, there's almost no mechanism for serious feedback. In other words, if the governor or the leader of the country or the leadership of the country makes errors, who's going to tell them? Who's going to say you screwed up? Because if you tell the leader of an autocrat, an autocrat you screwed up, you just lose your head, right? Sure. And so the incentive in, in, in the more centralized the system, the more powerful the incentive is to say, yes, you're doing everything right. Do more of it. Do more. Do that. Do that. And indeed, we see this even at the level of the president. No matter who is the president, one of the problems that they suffer in the United States is the people around them say, you're doing a great job. Sure. And they have a very difficult time learning. Well, But at least we replace presidents every four or eight years, right? We replace senators less often. But um, in that system, there's no mechanism for for uh, feedback to the leadership and ability of those who are governed to change the leadership. So is China outcompeting us today? Absolutely. Okay. No question about it. Um, are we doing a lot to, to uh, undermine ourselves? Absolutely. There's no doubt about it. Does that mean that over the long run, the Chinese system is going to outcompete or be a better system than our system? There, I am much more skeptical. Okay, and there, and and and, like just to dig into democracy, and then uh, maybe not a perfect comparison, but authoritarianism, because they think that the the terms um, get thrown around so loosely these days. Um, when we think about democracy without looking at all the flavors, we're just talking about um, like a mechanism for accountability 
and uh, maybe like a, a basic distribution of decision making where it's not concentrated in a single individual or very, right. you know. There are, as, as I try to Im imply, there are many, many flavors, as you call them, many different kinds of democracies. Um, I, for one, don't think that our political system, the American political system, is the best form of democracy. But um, we are responsible in a very real sense for having spread democracies around the world, some of which are improved versions of our own. But, and we could, you know, the, the details, every country has its, uh, every democracy has its own flavor and sets of institutional rules that decide who gets elected, how long they stay in office, how they caught, whether they're forced to compromise or whether they have more power when they're in office and so on. There's a lot of variation. I'm happy to chat with about that, but probably too detailed for the audience here. Sure. But, um, but the fundamental idea, the simple idea that any eighth grader should be able to understand is a democracy. What we mean by democracy is a system in which the citizens can have power over their governors and are able to change the governors uh, through some sets of mechanisms. And when we talk about authoritarianism, we're talking about uh, very limited entry points for ascending to power and uh, uh, a great deal of final say on uh, like, you know, decision making, I guess, politically at the very top. Is that a fair way to? Yeah, I mean, the so the words authoritarian and autocratic um, are, are very closely related. Um, autocratic means it really tends to mean a single leader, like you have Xi as an autocrat, and many of the dic dictatorships are autocratic, but authoritarian systems generally, um, which is a slightly broader concept, but um, are systems in which People, there, there may be many ways of getting to the top of an authoritarian system. The most obvious and most commonly used is through the military. Um, very many of the great autocrats in the world uh, or uh, authoritarian leaders, great, I mean, by bad, but uh, the worst, um, have risen to power and have, were once peasants, but were part of a revolution that led to uh, uh, the uh, dominance and then they came to power, but they're at the top of a hierarchy and there's, you cannot remove them from the top of that hierarchy unless they die mm -hmm. or are replaced by another um, uh, coup d'etat, essentially. And mm -hmm. that's how most authoritarians, so it's not that they, that many of the people who are at the top of the political hierarchy in the developing world in autocratic country or other autocratic countries came to, from the bottom. Um, Mao Zedong was a peasant, right? Sure. Uh, and and so was Castro, and so uh, uh, and so was Idi Amin. Um, you know, so. But the point is, is once they're at the top, the only way they can be replaced, replaced is essentially through violence. Mm. And um, I know there are like different theories, like uh, you know democratic peace theory and so forth. But if we just zoom into authoritarianism and we kind of try to uh, uh, look at it more closely, and I, and I know there's been so many different examples or styles of authoritarian governments, and, and, and there are, uh, you know, some legitimate states, you know, like China 
or, or like uh, certain states in the Middle East um, that run this way. But uh, when we're looking at uh, authoritarianism, it, 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 is it that because the decision-making is not distributed that maybe there is kind of a, a fear that this one individual can d deal out a lot of harm? Or, or is it the perception of maybe like human rights violations that tend to happen more often in authoritarian regimes that, um, you know, can also lead to, you know, uh, certain types of violence? Like, like wh wh why do you think the West is so critical of authoritarianism? Um, I think that uh, the West, I um, am critical, and most people who believe in democracy uh, and human rights are critical of authoritarianism because the authoritarian, um, wherever it is, and whatever flavor of authoritarianism you want to talk about, whether it's Cuba or... or um, South Africa before uh, in apartheid, um, those who are at the top, actually that's a more complicated story because they had a democratic regime amongst the whites, but so take that one aside. But an authoritarian or, or uh, what's his name in Chavez in, in Venezuela, um, or, and I'm not just pointing to leftist authoritarian regimes by any stretch, um, but that they, uh, they, they're in power, they want to stay in power, and they'll do everything they can to stay in power. And there are no mechanisms short of violence to keep them out of power. And they will then, and, but there is a, a impulse in many societies, I can't say all, but I think there's an impulse in many, if not most societies, for, for the average citizen to say, well, we want to have some, we want to get some of the goodies. Um, we want, so the authoritarian is very likely to uh, share the benefits of the wealth that he is, usually he is able to generate with his family, with his close friends, perhaps his tribe, right? But not to the vast majority of the people out there, um, because why should I? I'm, who are they? Um, sure. And of course, that creates the, the then then people will try to motivate or try and mobilize against this authoritarian. And what is the authoritarian going to do? Eliminate them, right? That's that's the, instead of accommodating the interest of the majority of the population, why don't you just oppress them? That means there's more money for me or my group, my family, my tribe, etc. Sure. Um, and and so uh, perhaps the leadership of the, let's say, the United States would do the same if they were, if, if it wasn't possible for the citizens to replace them. But it is. Sure. <laughs> so, uh, and, and that, and there is no mechanism for replacing the, the uh, authoritarian or an autocrat. And that means that they end up, and they end up then res, um, abusing the rights, the human rights of their own people. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and one of the, you know, so there's no doubt about it that I um, I have no interest in uh, living under any type of authoritarian rule. Uh, and plus, my politic is too anti-state for that. And then again, you know, I was born in a country like you uh, that limits the authority of the state. It's, it's expressed in the Constitution and, you know, uh, uh, a number of other documents that came together at the formation of our 
nation here in the US. But um, one thing that I think has frustrated many people, and this kind of comes back to what we were discussing earlier, is like, uh, I think democratic ideals are just that, they're ideals. And um, uh, people have these uh, kind of devout idealizations of what, what they think democracy is. But like, like f- for me to be uh, honest, like, you know, one of the big issues that is being discussed right now uh, in Washington is voting rights. But uh, I don't think that uh, getting more people to the poll is going to change the way that uh, our, our uh, politics uh, or, or government is run in the United States. And so I understand like, um, uh, you know, whatever democratic theories that exist um, have been designed to make sure that, you know, the broadest range of people uh, can participate. And over time, that range has expanded. But, but I don't know that uh, the, they're, you know, again, this is not research, but and maybe you have an opinion on this, but I don't know that there is a correlation between uh, like a direct correlation between uh, more participation and things actually changing. I think that there's actually a scope that policy gets written within, and it's written by the people that actually have the ability to write it. And then all that happens after that is maybe these downstream effects of people um, on the edges maybe hopefully getting to participate over extended periods of time that weren't able to participate in these democratic ideals in the past. So, 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 so I, I think that when I think of when I'm, when I'm contemplating democracy, I just, I don't see like uh, an expansion of participation as a way to alleviate grievances. And, and it, when, when, uh, when I hear people talk about South Africa and apartheid, it's like you still, you, you know, you, the, the institution that uh, contained people maybe isn't in the law, but, but maybe institutionally or sociologically, uh, people are still behaving in ways that existed before these laws. Uh, even when um, you look at Denver County, you can see how the black community and certain immigrant communities from Africa are contained in parts of Denver County and Aurora. And and it is a very obvious containment, something that I've become overtly aware of as a 23-year resident of Colorado and Denver County has a black mayor. But, But what has changed for the plight of the black community in Denver County, I would argue that it is still an extremely segregated uh, county, more segregated than when I'm in uh, places like, you know, domestically, places like Los Angeles or even Washington, D.C. is, is uh, much more integrated than Denver County. So so when, when I think about um, democratic ideals and, and uh, liberal values and so forth, uh, back to these economists that you're talking about, uh, it, it seems like uh, w- w- what, what they did predict is that the people that are supposed to participate based off of whatever natural ability or access to resources that they have will, and then the people that can't participate, uh, they won't. And I think that's like the most sterile version of uh, 
uh, uh, I guess, more liberal economic theory in the West. And so I, I, to me, and I'd like to hear some of your, your kind of closing statements on this too, Sven, and then uh, I, I want to make sure that people know how to find your work on the internet. But so to me, in, increasing uh, participation doesn't seem to reshape or change these uh, institutions that people seem to be frustrated in, with in the United States, like, you know, around equity, around inclusion, around diversity. At, at CU Boulder, I'm in 0.2% of the student population at a university that I'm looking at right now that at 39,000 students. I'm 0.2% of the student population, which, which makes me an, an anomaly, not only uh, on the campus, you know, because I identify as black and I'm mixed race, but, but it does uh, make me an anomaly in large parts of the U.S., but, but also across the entire state and then in a multi-state region, you know, like Wyoming, Nebraska, Utah, places I spend time in, the Colorado mountains. Um, so, so, so I think like, you know, I think there are these ideals that um, liberalism espouses, uh, and, and, and then there are people that are holding on to these old school ideas of like meritocracy, like uh, it's, it's a merit-based system if you, like you were saying, if you work hard and you do the right things, you'll you'll get to where you're going. And and so I I feel like people are becoming more disillusioned with that uh, more broadly. And uh, maybe there is some new way of uh, of looking at liberalism because I think that uh, if we call it uh, uh, liberal democracy with capitalism uh, next to it. I think it's highly effective, and, and I think it, it reaches its intended goals in, in a lot of ways. But, but that, that is why I would argue to your earlier point that it, it's anything um, but egalitarian in, in the sense that uh, it, it is hard for people to conform to the standards or the kind of uh, structures that America has put in place. And the only reason that I think my politic can come off as left sometimes is because of my mixed race background, because I get to be in a lot of different groups and perceived as, uh, you know, being in the in-group. People think I'm East Asian. Uh, people think I'm uh, Middle Eastern. Uh, sometimes people think I'm black. But, but in reality, nobody acknowledges that I'm 60% European and that my mom looks more like your mom, okay? Yeah. Uh, so, 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 so I, I, I can hear uh, the grievances um, just w with a little bit of uh, nuance. And so, so, so I, I love this system, but I, you know, I, I'm going to university as a first generation university student because uh, it took me a while to figure out why it was so important. And, go. and uh, so I just wonder, like, you know, what is it like for the other 0.2% of uh, students on the campus that, you know, maybe are more similar to me in terms of racial markers, um, but, but very far from me in terms of background? How, how do they feel about their surroundings? And, and then are, are democratic uh, values or, you know, uh, 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 more liberal ideals, is that going to 
uh, is that going to uh, lead to any type of institutional change or reform? And and, and so not, I, I'm not dystopic on any of these things. These are just some of the the basic questions I've been asking. So. I, so Sven, I, I'd love to hear your final thoughts, and then I, I want to make sure everyone knows where where to find you and where to find out more. Well, uh, your your uh, your your narrative ranged across a lot of different things. Let me I'll pick up on a couple of them. Um, one uh, about increasing participation. Um, the United States is the democracy that has the lowest level of participation of any democracy in the what we would call real democracy in the world, save for Switzerland. Um, and that is a very unique case. Uh, and by the way, women weren't even allowed to vote in Switzerland until 1974, um, or at least in all of Switzerland. But um, if non-voting were randomly distributed, it would be a lot less significant than it is in America, because it is not randomly distributed. Who votes? White, male, older people, right? Um, and we, and, and it's good. So, and who votes less? Minorities, young people, right? Women now are coming up and maybe in some subcategories vote more than men do. But the, um, so if it is not the case that increasing people just want to increase participation or voting because it's a moral good, it may be, it may be a moral good in the sense that, you know, you feel more committed to your system if you have a right to participate, et cetera. But the fact is that significant parts of our society have been excluded from voting and from participating and that it, that those, and, and those biases, the Jim Crow laws, uh, etc., are being reinstituted. So it is not the case that that um, the restriction on voting rights is going to be against middle class white people who are on social security. If it were not, I might vote for it. I, that's something I could actually vote for. But it's not. It's people like you who are going to be discriminated against, and made, it's going to be made more difficult. So that's one point. So. Um, and and I think one of the reasons people vote so little in the United States related to that is not just because so many are excluded or it's difficult for them to vote. I mean, it is incredibly difficult to vote in this country compared to most other countries. Most other countries, you want to vote, you go to voting day, you go up, you go to the voting booth and you vote, right? If you, you don't have to register in advance and show seven different IDs and shit like that, um, you, you vote. Uh, indeed... <laughs> Um, it's easier, you know, it's, it's easier to open a bank account in this country for many people than it is to vote. Uh, so that voting is a, a, a part of the story, but it's one of the reasons people don't vote is that they think that their vote doesn't matter. And there's really good evidence for that. So if you can be, and that has to do with the structure of voting in America, but the gerrymandering of districts, etc. So the, the, the areas in Denver in which that you've just spoke of, which are dominant African-American, um, they have an African-American representative to be sure. But the suburbs, Aurora and Broomfield and, and Boulder, which are white, 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 um, Boulder, now we have a we have a an African-American uh, representative in Congress, but that's Boulder because it's so profoundly liberal. Um, 
but Adams County doesn't, it isn't gonna get one. Um, and that's because that we have geographically separated each other and then vote the vote counts are not geographically dispersed. They are insulated. That's what gerrymandering is all about. So um, I think participation does matter and, and it's so low in this country because people have been discriminated against and because they think their vote doesn't matter and they're right on both accounts. Um, we are, uh, and that's becoming more and more and more the case. So I just wrote a piece for Politico, which unfortunately I don't think they're, they're gonna publish. I haven't heard for sure, but I don't think they are. Um, in which they said, oh, well, demographic change, there was an article saying demographic change is gonna solve America's problems because the Democrat, there are more young people and more young people are democratic and the Democrats are gonna therefore win the next elections. And like, no, 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 no. You don't understand American institutions because where the young people, especially young educated people, because they were surveying college educated people, they don't move to North Dakota. They move to California. And people who are ill-educated and or older and conservative, they move to North Dakota, right? So yes, you're having lots of demographic change in Idaho and Wyoming and places like that. Having lots of demographic change. So what's going to happen is the senators of California are already Democrats, and there are two of them. But if you take Nebraska, Wyoming, Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Alaska, and one other state, I counted this up, I forgot which the other state, one of the northeast, northwestern states, um, they have 14 senators, 14 senators. There's 7.4 million people in those seven states. They have 14 senators. That is a a coalition of senators that will block any progressive reform, no matter if 100% of the 38 million people living in California wanted something to happen, it won't happen because of the stranglehold, these conservative, very lightly populated states. And indeed, those states are becoming more conservative, not less conservative, because there is more demographic mobility. And the conservatives are moving to the states that have a stranglehold on American politics. And the liberals, the educated, the young are moving to states that are increasingly and will increasingly be outvoted in our political system. So it's a democracy, but it's a democracy designed to not let the majority rule. It's specifically designed, it was written, this is a book I'm writing now, um, it was specifically designed to make sure that the Southern slaveholding states didn't have their power to own people taken away from them by the Northerners because there were more Northerners than there were Southerners. That, that included three-fifths of you, but the Senate, the two senators each was a keystone of that. So we are um, increasingly fragmented. We're, and, and oddly, and I'm, I'm against their own self-interest in my particular point of view, um, they are voting, those small rural states vote for public policies that will increase the inequality in our society and they get screwed and therefore more angry. Uh, super fascinating. Hmm. So much to consider, uh, Dr. Seinma. And um, so I... We'll wrap this up. It's been really incredible to talk to you. And I also hope that we get to do a part two. 
I, I know that you don't use technology that much, even though I did take one of your uh, quotes and tweeted and pin it on my Twitter. It's interesting. This is the third podcast. I've been asked to do podcasts, three of them this week. So maybe I am oh, going to do this. <laughs> you're, well, you're blowing up. So uh, you're, do you know your Twitter handle? Uh, yeah, Sven Steinmo. Okay, at Sven Steinmo. And I'm going to include all of this information so people will be able to click the links. I have a, and then, um, I have a website with uh, some research and yeah. I've also, I think people might be interested. I'm kind of proud of, I did a, web, uh, a TEDx talk uh, called yeah. okay Boomers. It's time to finally grow up. Um, it's on YouTube and so on. I'm okay. Delighted I'll, if people would look at that. I'll include all of these links in the actual uh, Substack uh, message that will go out and uh, your website svensteinmo.com twitter at svensteinmo and then uh, I'll include this YouTube talk I, I, I mean it's better first and last name is the it's tough to come by these days the I want to go buy my first and last name.com and they want like $2,600 to start the bidding yeah, right. so I'm not famous yeah anyways uh Sven thank you so much <laughs> what's that Sven or you don't have as unique a name I I mean Sweat is Christopher Sweat is decently unique. Yeah. But you're right. Sven Steinmo, I haven't heard that before until you I think I'm the only one. <laughs> you might be. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sven. This has been amazing. I really appreciate Thank your you, time today. Thank you very much, Chris. I enjoyed the chat. Thank you, Sven.